0: of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. I hope you're doing well wherever you're listening from. If you've not already heard, Pluto recently launched an exciting new six-part podcast series available through the Radicals in Conversation feed. It's called Locating Legacies. It's a co-production by the Stuart Hall Foundation and Pluto Press, funded by Arts Council England and hosted by the wonderful Gracie May Bradley. Over the course of the series, Gracie speaks to some truly incredible writers, thinkers, and activists. Kojo Koram, Francoise Vergès, Olufemi Taiwo, Vijay Prashad, Sita Balani, and Ruth Wilson-Gilmore. At the time of recording, episodes one and two are already live, so I really do urge you to check them out if you haven't already. And if you head to plutobooks.com, Forward slash locating Legacies, you'll find our specially curated reading list to accompany these episodes. All those books are 40% off, you just have to use the coupon Stuart Hall at the checkout. Okay, it's my real pleasure today to be joined on the show by Jeremy Seabrook, whose new memoir, Private Worlds Growing Up Gay in Post War Britain, has just been published by Pluto Press. It's a wonderful book, beautifully written, poignant, and evocative. It's a memoir, so obviously it's very personal, tells the story of Jeremy's childhood and young adult life, and it also offers a fascinating glimpse into the social fabric of mid-20th century provincial British life, a world that was on the cusp of profound changes then and which feels especially distant today. The book is available to buy from plutobooks.com and listeners can get 40% off, just use the coupon PODCAST at the checkout. So, Jeremy, thank you very much for taking the time to come and sit down with me today. Um, I'd like to do something a little bit different to our usual format and include a couple of readings from the book during the course of our conversation. Um, So maybe we could start with a reading from page one in lieu of me asking you to summarise what Private Worlds is about. This
1: is the story of a friendship between me and Michael O'Neill, gay men who grew up in the English provinces while homosexual activity between men was still a crime. Our relationship was inflected by secrecy and fear and when the prohibition on same-sex relationships was partially lifted in 1960s we were already well into adult life the shadows that had distorted our friendship during adolescence and beyond were never wholly dispelled the result was an entanglement of dependency and resentment the rich and satisfying attachment we might have achieved was never realized The transformation in attitudes towards sexual orientation came too late for us. Although we lived through the moment of gay liberation, it never really lived through us. Legislation is a blunt instrument, and many people whose sense of self was formed under the taboos Michael and I experienced remained for a long time with an impaired identity. Cultures are not changed by fiat, but are organic living entities which respond in their own time and at their own pace to an always evolving popular sensibility. The reticences over our sexuality were eventually overcome and we acknowledge the sad absurdity of such a long concealment. But a bitterness remained and the relationship never really recovered from the damage which the social and moral circumstances of the time had inflicted. This book records the consequences of a relationship distorted by fear and evasion. Some of these still have the power to astonish me. Others became clear only as I wrote. It seems to me essential that even in the changed conditions in which young LGBTQ people now live, we remember a past shadowed by oppression and concealment. It's important for at least two reasons. First, in order that the struggle for the acceptance and tolerance of the present moment should be understood by those who have had no experience of the harshness of the era in which their elders lived. And second, because there is no social progress and no privilege gained that may not be reversed. We have only to look at how quickly liberal social attitudes of the Weimar Republic were annihilated under Hitler. While the recent controversy of a conservative dominated Supreme Court in the USA over the Roe versus Wade settlement of almost 50 years ago has shown the power of determined reaction to contest the most humane legislation. In the 1980s, the wave of homophobia engendered by AIDS, the gay plague, as it was called in the press, reminds us of the fragility of progress. In any case, almost 28,000 homophobic hate crimes were reported in 2021-22 by the 45 territorial police forces in Britain, no doubt a significant underestimate of the true number. And when we consider the increase of intolerance in populist regimes all over the world, the dangerous lure of nostalgia in India, Russia, Turkey and Brazil, among many others, and observe the re-emergence of a far right thought to have been vanquished in the Western world, we come to understand the fragility
0: of what had been regarded as permanent political improvements. So the book's called Private Worlds. Um, could you tell us a little bit about this choice of a title? What are these words referring to? I think it's referring to the kind of relationship
1: between me and Michael O'Neill, which is the subject of the memoir. When growing up together, we developed a sort of folie à deux. It must have been a kind of adolescent fantasy world which we inhabited. It was secretive, it was furtive, because we felt a deep shame about being gay at that time. And I think that's the crucial thing, that although we grew up together, we never came out to each other. Because you're talking about the early 1950s, when I first met Michael. And that was a time of extremely repressive policies, government policies against gays. And that has its own reason, because the case of Burgess and Maclean, you know, the kind of Soviet spies who were upper-class traitors, they were upper-class. And we felt that being gay was distinctly upper-class. There was also the case against Lord Montague of Bewley, and some of his friends who had had relationships with people in the Air Force. And the Airmen were blackmailed into into giving uh, evidence against him. And there was also John Gilgood, who uh, was fined for cottaging at some point. And this was all in about 1953, 54, when Michael and I were 14. And it served as a powerful kind of aversion therapy to anything about talking about being gay. And behind all this, of course, it was the American State Department pressuring the British government on account of the Burgess and Maclean affair. And the then Home Secretary, David Maxwell Fife, I think his name was, he believed that we were suffering from a plague of sodomy. And so prosecutions against gay men went up by absolutely astronomical levels in the early 1950s. We avidly read the newspapers that recorded all the delinquencies of gay men and we couldn't bear to be associated with them because not only was it the were they upper class we thought and it was a common belief you know in the working class community then that it it wasn't people like us who got up to this sort of stuff Um, we who were very proud of our working class credentials wanted to dissociate ourselves not only from the being upper class and from being gay at the same time so it served as a very repressive element in our
0: formation when we were growing up together. So as you say, the book is centered around this friendship, this relationship with Michael O'Neill. Yeah. And he comes through so vividly on the page in terms of his character. Um, when did you first meet and what attracted you to him or drew you to him in the first place?
1: It was in the first year of grammar school, basically. Michael was a very charismatic person. I mean, he was a very attractive, very seductive person. And I remember at the age of 11, he was boasting that he'd read Gibbon's Decline and Fall from beginning to end. I mean, nobody in that school knew what Gibbon's Decline and Fall was. So he, he seemed to be a kind of prodigy right from the beginning. And he also expressed the desire to become a Labour MP, which in our very conservative grammar school was like, it sounded profoundly radical. So he had these very attractive characteristics. And I sort of thought that, wherever we were going in our distinguished career, I couldn't do better than
0: sort of link my fortune to Michael's because it was bound to be somewhere good that we'd go. Mm. As I referred to in my introduction, the book is also a piece of post-war working-class social history. Um, In the 1950s, you know, these self-contained communities of provincial towns such as Northampton are really on the brink of a transformation. uh, And you offer a number of really fascinating portraits in the book of what feel like now quite archaic figures. Um, So, you know, the autodidact, the bigamist, the travelling salesman, and the woman running a general store out of her front room. And while the book centres around your friendship with Michael and the impact that it had on your lives, there are obviously other very important relationships that figure as well. And your respective relationships with your mothers particularly stands out. You talk in the book about the way that 1950s society, you know, which was deeply patriarchal, impacted the women in your lives, and how this then inflected your relationships with them. So could you say a little bit more about this? Because it comes through in the text that your family relationships had a big impact on your relationship with each other.
1: Yes, they did. And I think in a sense, our mothers had very significant impact upon us, because Michael was brought up while his father was away fighting in the war, because he was born in 1938 and I was born a year later. Michael was an evacuee, that was the other thing that set them apart. They came to Northampton and Michael said they arrived in, you know, the station in Northampton where... They were met by their prospective hosts and people looked at them as if they were kind of cattle and chose them by the look of how respectable or how tractable they'd be. So they're all these kind of mothers with young babies or young children um, and people would walk up and down the line, um, don't like the look of her, don't like the look of him, he looks a bit dirty and, you know, he said he they were some of the last to be chosen and they went to a kind of miserable, miserable terraced house in Northampton where they lived in one room living on pieces of gristle and watery custard and cabbage and uh, you know a light bulb that barely shed any light into the room and was never heated. And So they found it a kind of miserable existence after living in London and lived in a kind of exile. So Michael became his mother's principal companion and the centre for her life because she was taken away from everything she'd ever known. And that developed a very intense relationship there. And I think when his father came back, it was a great shock to him. And uh, she felt that she'd been too close to her little boy. And she was, I think, quite rejecting because she felt some shame when, the, when her husband came home. So that had a deep impact on his life. And I think he he reenacted the rejection that he felt then he reenacted it with in many of his adult relationships
0: where he was not the one rejected he was the one who got the prize who got the main relationship yeah my next question was going to be about the intrusive return of his father because it comes through in the book that none of the affected parties really desired this return in a sense and it does seem to have had this profound and lasting impact on michael in the life lessons that he drew from that experience i think you describe it as a kind of expulsion Um, And what about your relationship with your family? How did that differ from Michael's?
1: Well, it was very different. I mean, Michael's family thought of themselves as slightly superior because they were metropolitan, they'd come from London, and they had a certain contempt for the kind of rather bovine, semi-peasant characteristic, as they saw it, of, of the people in Northampton who, you know, worked with shoe leather. They saw them as provincial and slightly backward. And, of course, my relationship with my twin brother and my mother was colored by the fact that my mother's husband had tertiary syphilis, and so she found another man to have a relationship with so she could have a child and she had two of us, she had children. But the secret and the shame of what she had done penetrated our lives. so we were absolutely terrified of some unknown, awful event in our life to which we weren't privy. in fact we didn't know about it until we were about 30 it had the effect of making me frightened of sex because she herself i think was frightened of sex and she transmitted that to us very well and i think what happened was that michael became afraid of love and i was afraid of sex and that double repression worked its somber magic in our relationship deeply repressive and collusive but at the same time it was a very profound relationship that we had. I think it was actually a kind of thwarted love relationship, but because of the prohibition on homosexuality, and because of the particular story of our relationship with our parents, it drove us back onto our own resources and we formed a kind of a defense against the world. And that defence took the form of pretending that we were above it all because we were the upwardly mobile. I mean, the thing is, we knew we were going We were going places because we both passed the 11 plus. We, we were clever, but we were not half as clever as we thought we were. But we were definitely going places. So we were part of that sense that our future would not be in that provincial town. And we despised the ambitions of those who saw becoming notable characters in the provincial town as we had a slight contempt for them so we found solace and comfort in our dislike of the old provincial morality and all the uh, people that we saw around us we were quite merciless we sort of set ourselves up as sort of sociologists even though we weren't at the age of you know 12 13 We developed a sense of our own superiority and a kind of snobbery. It was very horrible. The schooling that we had was also very snobbish. But we developed a different, an alternative snobbery. And we thought we would reach out over that rather limited provincial capacity for rising in the world to a wider horizon beyond to now must, in retrospect, have been the liberal middle class. We didn't know it existed then. We didn't know what it was. But we knew there was something beyond the Northampton of the school and the 64 pages of rules about not eating in the street and raising your hats to ladies and not kicking tin cans and all that kind of stuff. And we we hated all that and we thought beyond that there must be a better life and that was what we thought we were destined for. So we had a strong sense of our own originality and our own destiny. Very arrogant, but at the same time a deep sense of shame and anxiety and of course our relationship then was fashioned by the fact that Michael started a vigorous sexual life when he was you know, quite young and I didn't. And we spent so much time in each other's company but there would be certain times when I would wait for Michael to come and visit and we'd sit in our front room. And sometimes he just wouldn't come and I wondered what had happened. And he told all these stories about his parents being I mean, the complete fiction. He was a real dramatist and drama queen, basically. And he told these stories about how his parents said they could be violent, they could be cruel, completely untrue. He made my mum and me believe that he'd found some sort of uh, refuge in our house. But then some nights he wouldn't come and I'd stand on the doorstep and look up and down and wonder why he hadn't come. And I was deeply hurt. And I think that I felt terribly rejected when he didn't come. And... That was part of the relationship and it went on like that for a very long time. In some ways he was the superior partner and I was the sort of uh, petitioner for his company and he sort of made, made the running. That changed subsequently, but uh, that was the way That's it started. And then we went out into the into Northampton, into the town, and we would go to things like the Psychic Society and the Arts Association and the local drama societies. And we used to go to the, the local theatre, which was on its last legs, and they would sh- be showing things like My Bare Lady or advertising, come and meet the stars without bras in our bars. And we'd go to the theatre and there'd be some frightful comedian on and we'd shout rubbish and go clattering, echoing down the staircase, and we thought we were being radical. It's pathetic. It looks pathetic now. And then, of course, we went to Cambridge together, and uh, that was uh, an interesting experience because Michael had a much happier time in Cambridge than I did. I was very unhappy and shy and lonely, partly because I was repressed. But Michael led a very vigorous social and sexual life, which uh, I was not privy to, and we also went with our friend Janet, who we'd met at our local dramatic society. And she was a daughter of a clergyman and she was she was all feeling. And Michael and I thought we were being kind of tough and macho, I think, and working class by denying feelings and pretending that this was sentimentality and we shouldn't indulge in it. But Janet, she was romantic, impractical, otherworldly, beautiful woman who taught me, I think, how to feel. And I think this really upset Michael and started the dissolution of our relationship, of our intense relationship.
0: We'll definitely have to talk some more about Janet in a bit because she's a key central figure in the book. Um, It's interesting, I wrote many questions preparing for this, looking at the backdrop of Northampton life uh, in the years before you left for Cambridge, you know, how you sort of set yourselves up as almost anthropologists or sociologists observing the townspeople with detachment and a sense of your own separateness from them. I think you also remark a couple of times that you feel you were less politically committed in retrospect than you think you ought to have been. Why do you think this was the case? Well, I thought a lot about this, especially subsequently,
1: and I think it was because we felt that the society from which we felt alienated, certainly, but we felt that it was going to recognise us in a certain way, and that helped to reconcile us to something that we really didn't admire. So we pretended we hated the society, but we secretly wanted its approval, whether that was partly through being gay or partly because we thought it was recognising our intelligence, because we both come from working-class backgrounds, and I think later when we started to write plays together using the material that we'd acquired when we were growing up, we wanted recognition from the society. And there was a, we, we did receive a certain amount because we got plays on in the theatre and on radio and on TV. And I think we were too concerned with appeasing the society which we affected to disdain, but were not slow in welcoming the such meagre honours as it heaped upon us. So I think that was the secret, and I think that probably accounts for a a lot of conservatism, social conservatism, more generally, that people think the society is going to shower goods and pleasures and services upon them, even though it doesn't, even though it withholds them, even though it's unjust and unfair, and they never get as much as they think they're going to. And of course, coming in through the 1950s, it was the beginnings of affluence and all that, so we... We felt that the people we came from were going to be looked after by the welfare state. That was our licence to go away. So that was our sort of pass out of uh, the working class, really, that we could go with a clear conscience because our parents and those left behind would be looked after. That really tempered what might have otherwise been a much more kind of radical approach to that society. Although we affected to despise it, we secretly felt it was going to recognise our true merits and
0: therefore couldn't be that bad. I think that's a secret. Mm. You write a lot about your thoughts on your own class position in relation to the people around you. I think you also say, um, and I quote, that class was certainly a strong driver in our relationship, but it was class at its most negative and unheroic in our denial of each other's sexual identity. Could you expand on that a little? We were proud of being working class in the sense
1: that it served as a passport to where we wanted to go. It wasn't so much that we really loved it because we found lots in it that was repressive, the sexism and the prejudice against being gay and also the way that women were treated. uh, We saw all of that. Um, So I think we overcompensated by identifying with the machismo which neither of us possessed. So I think that was partly our alibi because... By the time, you know, by the time homosexuality was partly decriminalised, we were both 27. In a way, it was too late for us. The damage had been done to our relationship. And not only that, but also to the identity, our identity as we were growing up. And we had a struggle to come to terms with that on account of the lateness of the hour at which the the
0: criminality was uh, cancelled. What was life like for the gay and lesbian people that, you know, did live in the town, whether or not they were out at the time uh, in the 1950s? Were there any social and cultural sanctuaries? Not really. I mean, no, there weren't. And in fact,
1: what, what would happen would be that people who'd be caught cottaging and would have their name published in the local press, which was a bit like the pillory. And people in industrial towns in those days, they had long memories. So once your name had been in the paper, it was remembered forever. So you couldn't live it down. Of course there were transgressive spaces where people could cruise and did cruise down by the river, and there were kind of things like the drama societies in which um you know people could express their feelings obliquely and covertly. So there were places where being gay or lesbian could have a decent burial, but they weren't actually overt. It's not that the people in general were fiercely homophobic, because they thought such things didn't happen here. When I went to Cambridge when I was 18, I was taken there by my uncle Arthur in his Ford Cortina, and he stood in the middle of Trinity Great Court, and he looked round and he said, these places, breeding grounds for Oma bloody sexuality. And my Auntie May said, please God may it never touch any of us, and I thought, gosh, do they know something? And I, but they didn't. It was, it was, that was said in kind of innocence or ignorance. But it had a very potent effect, you know. It's, it, I mean, it sounds funny now, but it was deeply wounding at the time. And I think I kept that sense of shame at who I w- was, accompanied for a very long time. It was fortified by my mother's you know, story of this syphilitic man who turned out not to be our father, who had red cotton around every knife, his knife and fork and around his mug and his plate. They were all separate. So everything about him was distinct and different and uh, remote from us. He was never allowed to touch us, which, of course, enhanced his desirability enormously. But, you know, she'd made a pact with him. She said, you know, you you acknowledge these children as yours and I look after you, which she did for about ten years. And she was running a butcher's shop. They'd they'd taken a lease on a butcher's shop and the shame of that secret coming out would have destroyed everything that they'd got. Mm. She was looking after the children and she was running the shop while he sat in the back room feeling sorry for himself listening to the racing results, you know. Mm. So you could see how her sense of fear that it would come out. Mm. Because I think that was the other thing about these smaller communities is that... You know, once these things become known, your life can
0: be wrecked. Mm. I think you write how in stable communities, life is a series of moral tales, since other people's lives are transparent and everybody knows what happened in the end. It's interesting how in the mid-20th century, a sort of increasing geographic mobility undermined the minute social distinctions and desire for social mobility within the community and presumably loosened some of those more oppressive facets of provincial life as well. One thing that would be good to touch on before we, you know, go to Cambridge, as it were, you talk in the book about your experiences going to the theatre in the late 1950s, before it was demolished, uh, and the thrill offered by the Christmas Panto for the way that gender roles were subverted, uh, essentially. How much did these experiences teach you about yourself and your own identity or your own latent desires?
1: They were very exciting, but I don't think it was very... It wasn't articulated. I don't think I articulated myself, but I remember being utterly fascinated by the... Not so much by the um, man playing the dame, but by the principal boy who was a a woman dressed up as a boy. And that seemed to me to be very seductive and very alluring. And I felt some kind of special relationship with that person. But it didn't come out as a sense of being gay at that time because it didn't, you know... But it was a very potent experience it moved me strangely because there were very few other places where you could get that kind of sense of the arbitrary mutability of gender and relationships because it was also fixed you know we got 12 uncles and 12 aunties and lots of cousins, and so they kind of rooted you in a sort of reality, which was their reality, and there was no way of transcending it. So you were caught in a kind of mesh, really, in a kind of great cobweb of kinship,
0: and it felt like being caught in a net, really. When did you start to realise that you were gay? When did you articulate that to yourself? I think we have so many selves
1: inside us, and you can know it and not know it at the same time. So I, I kind of had, you know, secret relationships with... Boys at school, and I'd go up to the house where they lived and moon about and look at their front garden and wonder what was going on inside and what kind what his life was like. So, but it was all kept totally to myself because it was like there was no one to whom I could actually talk about it. So you know it, but at the same time, I think I always felt that oh, it it would be all right one day. I mean, Mum, Mum was so insistent. She'd say, "Oh, all I want is for you to be happy. I want you to grow up and give me." Grandchildren, you know, so she'd got my future already planned. And I didn't feel I had a legitimate alternative to that. And I thought, well, perhaps it will happen. It'll be all right. I'll grow up. I'll get married. I'll give her grandchildren. That's what she wants. That's what I haven't got to do. And that was very potent, very powerful, right until I was into my early 20s, really. That coexisted with the sense of
0: being attracted to men. Hmm. You've already mentioned Janet briefly and she looms large of the text and you've already alluded to the impact that she had on your relationship with Michael. So, you know, who was she um, and when did you first meet her?
1: When we were about, I think, in the sixth form, we started a dramatic society and we asked some of the girls from the posh girls' school if they'd come and join us. And they to our astonishment, they did. And they were already a class above us because they were the daughters of clergymen and teachers and the professional classes, the liberal professional classes, doctors and so on. And they shone a light on the kind of world we hoped we would join when we actually left Northampton. Janet was an absolutely central... Character in all of that. And uh, I had probably the deepest relationship with any woman I've ever had with Janet, actually. And uh, she taught me how to feel. And all these discussions were going on at that time, a bit later on, this is around that time about whether, you know, gay men had very strong relationships with their mothers. And Janet sort of instantly got it and she said, no, no, it's not that at all. It's simply that certain affinities, certain sensibilities are drawn to each other. It's a consequence, not a cause of the relationship between many gay men and their mothers. So she kind of had that sort of wonderful insight and uh, I owe her a great debt of gratitude.
0: Mm. And the three of you went to Cambridge and you had quite differing experiences?
1: Yeah, I was terribly unhappy and uh, Janet flourished and Michael
0: flourished and I didn't, basically. (laughs) Mm. So, how did your experiences or paths diverge after university? Uh, Michael goes off to America. Is that is that right? Michael's off to America, yeah, mm. and uh, leads a picaresque life. According, I mean, as it turned out
1: later, it wasn't so picaresque. But you know, Janet stayed at Cambridge, and I went home to Northampton and uh, worked in the public library. Then, when Michael came back from America, I went to live with Michael and Michael's boyfriend in West London, and that was a
0: disaster. Hmm. Interesting. OK, I think perhaps this might be a good moment to have our second reading from the book.
1: When Michael came back from America, he found a semi-derelict flat in a Peabody building close to Holborn. Employment was even easier to come by. He worked in an ice lolly factory in Acton, a form of manufacturing undreamed of in the days when people knew a good bit of Northampton shoe leather when they saw it. The workers had to wear specially hygienic boots because a lot of the liquid spilled from the vats onto the floor, and this was swept up and returned to the production line. Michael said it cured him in advance of any taste he might have developed for that particular form of confectionery. The flat was totally without basic amenities. On his third day there, Janet arrived. Darling Michael, I've come to stay with you. Janet was already suffering from the effects of the undiagnosed multiple sclerosis, which had already diminished her life. She brought all her worldly possessions, A saucepan, a Japanese parasol and an ivory fan. I'll have the bedroom and you can sleep in the kitchen. Isn't the room ghastly? Never mind, I'll do some murals. That horrid damp patch reminds me of Europa and the bull. She set to work extemporising on the stain which was duly incorporated into her collage of images from Greek and Roman mythology. The antipathy between Michael and Janet remained unspoken and only came to the surface in their conflicting friendship with me. A shared distaste for the hometown and the experience of going through university together created a bond between us and indeed linked together for a time the lives of Janet and Michael who would only later discover how little they actually liked each other. Michael and Janet lived a chaotic, improvised existence. There was no sink so they did the washing up in a cardboard box. This had to be renewed every two or three days because it was soon reduced to pulp. When Mr and Mrs O'Neill, Michael's parents, visited, feeling vindicated that their son had returned to the capital, they were anxious to see how well Michael had done for himself. His mother wept because it reminded her of her orphaned years in Little Dorrit buildings. Janet offered them tripe and onions because she thought this a suitable working-class fare. "'No, thank you,' Mrs O'Neill shuddered. "'When she sat on the dingy sofa, "'she was alarmed to find a pile of bones underneath. "'What's this, a skeleton?' "'Janet was apologetic. "'No, it's only bones. "'I was going to make some soup, only I forgot. "'Michael, despite forsaking Northampton forever, "'was a frequent visitor. "'We took up our friendship "'almost as though he had never been away.' Neither of us had ever been as comfortable with anyone else as we were in each other's company. He asked, how's your engagement, Jerry? I said long. How's Janet? The same, a bit more so, maybe. Then there was another period of silence from Michael. He had met Alastair and was planning to move into his house. Alastair had been brought up, fetched up as he called it, in a Barnardo's institution near Kirkcubri. He had never known his parents but had been told that his father was a hospital consultant and his mother a nurse, so it was not difficult to piece together the nature of the relationship that had produced him and declared him in a fit of bureaucratic compassion an orphan. His institutional life of discipline, order, prosaic literalness and lack of love had scarred him deeply, though perhaps less so than his first experience of the outside world. It had gone to the army recruitment centre in a neighbouring town just after his 15th birthday, this being the occasion when charity children were believed to be able to stand on their own feet and take the burden of their living costs off the state or whichever philanthropic institution had taken them in. The recruiting officer had told him to strip, and when he had done so, he was pushed to the floor and raped. Since he had been raised to have faith in whatever adults in authority told him, He suffered this humiliation in silence and told no one what had happened. It was only many years later that he was able to assess the effects of the violence done to him. At the time, it only added to the burden of repression in which the institution had already instructed him. He was obsessively tidy, deferential and punctilious, dutiful and intolerant of other people unless they were gay. He had met Michael in that... For gay people at the time, the most common, if uncongenial, of places where acquaintances were made, the urinal at the bottom of Dog Kennel Hill in South London. This was, after all, the early 60s, before the hour of enlightenment had struck. Neither Michael nor Alastair was under any illusion about the nature of their relationship. Neither wanted anything to do with what they called slushy sentimentality. Alastair was brusque and emphatic, while Michael was well steeled against involvements that might demand any dredging of the night dark depths of feeling. Both were as it were experts in emotional surgery, proficient in bypassing the heart. They rented a flat in Hammersmith a newly built structure in silver gray brick with wide windows, which rattled fiercely as district line trains sped within a few feet. There were multiple advantages in the apartment. It was compact, easy to clean, close to the shops, convenient for transport. There was only one serious drawback in the arrangements, and that was the length of time Michael would have to spend in the hours between work and sex. He was by this time teaching in a secondary school, and Alistair's duties allowed him to reach home before five o'clock. Long, possibly savourless stretches of time lay before him. Michael required entertainment, of a kind scarcely to be fulfilled by the limited number of TV channels in Britain at that time and their almost indistinguishable programmes. It was therefore natural that he should think of me in, the, in this role, knowing, as he did, that I was languishing in Northampton between waiting for the end of term when the man from the Band of Hope came to address school leavers on the evils of drink with the visual aid of a pickled human liver as supporting evidence and going to see Adam Faith perform at the Savoy Cinema with friends I had made during my sojourn at the library. The idea of sharing a flat with Michael and Alistair came like a promise of deliverance. My engagement was not formally broken off. It dissolved in a mutual recognition of the delusion it had been. I became more conscious of my sexuality, which appeared out of the mists of a prolonged adolescence like the contours of a continent I never knew existed. I felt both guilt and grief at my capacity for the deception I had practised, both on Sheila and on myself. I cannot say that I ever admitted that I was gay before this time. An obscure discomfort accompanied me, but while it remained unarticulated, it remained in shadow, in the vague terrain between innocence and ignorance. All this ought to have made me pause and wonder what I was doing when I agreed to share a flat with Michael and Alistair. I never asked myself where the obtuse angle might lie in this triangular piece of emotional geometry.
0: So I suppose it was when you were living in that flat with the two of them that you really embarked on your playwriting career with Michael. Yeah. So what inspired you to start down that path? Boredom. (laughs) And what did you draw on for inspiration? Like, What was the first play that you wrote about?
1: The first play was about... um, There were two young women in a neighbouring flat, they had a little girl, they came from the north of England somewhere, they came from uh, Bradford or somewhere like that, and the father of the little girl had given the mother some money to get rid of her because he didn't want to marry her. So they set up a flat in London and they wanted to get this little girl to be a model. So they somehow, I don't know how they got her into starring in some kind of uh, commercial for something... And then they got a spot for her where they would advertise package holidays and she would be the child of the family. And they had to put her under a, a sun lamp to make her nice and bronzed. And they had invited some men friends over for a drink that afternoon and the little girl got burned under the... Not, I mean, not seriously burned, but she was like too bronzed to be a model. So we use this story as a kind of metaphor for what had happened to the working class, how they had been beguiled and manipulated by the system. And that was our first play actually, it was rubbish, but it was really, it had a a core of, and we discovered we could write dialogue very well because we acted out the parts and we were really a kind of drag act monkey. So we knew, especially working class women, we were very good at. And so we we did all these improvised things and we found that uh, it worked very well. And we had such a wonderful time doing it. We laughed and laughed. Although I think we were pretty unkind towards the people we were writing about. But we thought we had a proprietorial interest in them because they were our people. So we didn't see it as being patronising or patriarchal or condescending. which It was all of those things.
0: It's interesting how you say you were particularly drawn towards characterisations of working class women in your plays. And you also repeatedly describe playwriting as a form of therapy for the two of you. Uh, So in what ways was the process therapeutic?
1: Well, it meant we could play out aspects of our identity that we'd never previously expressed. We were a kind of drag act. So I think both had this um, identification with the position of working-class women. And we felt we understood it in a way that we did. But because there was no outlet for it in our daily life, I mean, I was a social worker at this time and Michael was a teacher. You didn't, in those days, get to be a drag act in the social services or in secondary schools in London.
0: Mm. So you were living in London during the advent of the gay liberation movement and we've already referred to it but you know how much did this have an impact or not on your lives you describe your relationship to this social movement as being one of relative indifference you know why do you think that this was the case
1: somehow it didn't reach the core of our being which had been established earlier and although i did join you know icebreakers and i did you know was on the periphery of of all this and felt that we're doing something useful it didn't move me at the core as it ought to as I feel it ought to have done or it would have done if perhaps we hadn't been so repressed
0: can you tell us a bit more about what icebreakers was and what service it provided
1: yeah, yeah. Um, icebreakers was a telephone counselling service for people who had not come out or and who wanted to talk to other gay people and we just advertised flyers all over south london and then much further afield and we had a telephone which was every evening i think for about 3 hours in a little office in atlantic road in brixton and uh, it was astonishing the numbers of calls that came of people who had never knowingly spoken to another gay person somehow it got all over the country so calls would come in from you know little villages in lincolnshire and big cities and people were hesitant and frightened and we gave them advice and urged them to come out, actually, was the was the story, and not to be afraid anymore. So it, it worked very well. I mean, it was very good and provided a very good service. And then on Sunday afternoons, there would be a tea party, it was called, at somebody's house, where people who called in the week could come and uh, talk face-to-face with, with other gay people. And uh, that was like the process of coming out for lots of gay people of all ages, I mean, and of all kind of classes as well we had a kind of director of social services in a London borough who came. And lots of people who'd injured themselves or done self-harm because they were so full of self-loathing and all that. And so gradually it did serve as a very valuable therapeutic um, activity for a lot of people. And it did a lot of good. And it, it, it was part of a, a natural process of a wider coming out. I mean, it was a time just before, at the time when Geoffrey Weeks's book coming out was uh, published. And... Uh, It did serve a very valuable purpose. I mean, I think that some of the people who joined Icebreakers did so because they saw it as a way of, you know, getting sort of sex with people who... It was like a dating service without advertising itself as such. Um, But I think most of us took it quite seriously as being a, a valuable contribution so that other people would be able to enjoy the same kind of freedoms that we'd actually attained it did touch us of course we were we were deeply profoundly influenced and grateful for the fact that partial decriminalization had occurred and that what we were doing was no longer likely to be threatened by you know being trapped by a policeman in a, in a cottage or being shamed in your place of work so all of that we were profoundly thankful for but i, I come back to the same thing why we were never really political i think we 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 had too great an investment in the status quo in the existing society because at this time we were you know writing plays that were being kind of acknowledged or doing things for the BBC and all the rest of it. So I think we we sort of felt that the destiny that we had been promised was being fulfilled by the very society which had actually repressed us. It's a strange paradox. Hmm.
0: So at some point you leave this increasingly untenable menage a trois with Alastair and Michael. And you return home to Northampton. Uh, and this time you do get involved in politics. There's a local campaign, I think, to halt the demolition of about a thousand homes. And you become an elected councillor as well. So what are your recollections of that experience? You know, how did you find it returning to the town you'd grown up in, uh, trying to represent the people that you'd you know, left behind, in a sense?
1: It was an enjoyable experience, actually, and very energising. And uh, I thought, oh, well, I've come home but, of course, that meant that I'd sort of left behind the sexual identity because I'd gone back home and I became briefly a counsellor. I got thrown off the council for not attending enough meetings, actually. I mean, I wasn't there very long. I wasn't a very good counsellor. But I sort of told myself that I was going home and taking home all the advantages that I'd enjoyed and sharing them with uh, the people.
0: Hmm. And you then return to London again and, you know, Michael persuades you to leave Northampton and the two of you move in together in a flat in Herne Hill. Yeah. What was life like at that time in that place? Were you working together again? That was wonderful, yes. We did a lot
1: of work together there and uh, it was wonderful because the flat, it was like theoretically furnished, but it was so exiguously furnished. I mean, it was like doll's house house furniture and there's no carpets and it was so scruffy and we just let things go and... We did no housework. We barely cooked. We just drank and wrote plays and had fun and had lots of people there. And it was fun. It was great fun.
0: Okay. I wonder if we might have our final reading at this point.
1: Sometimes Michael stayed away from the flat for several days. He'd spend time with an antique dealer or with a traveller on a site on Bromley Common. He'd met a Peruvian, a South African, even once an Inuit... He had a list of countries in which he could mark off his triumphs in a growing global gazette. He brought zeal to what he declared an attack on authoritarianism, the life-denying suppression of spontaneous, ubiquitous human sexuality. He insisted that life was about happiness. The real enemy of our natural feelings is a sombre, white, male-dominated capitalism which feeds on aggression, discipline and war. Michael had shown me where I could meet men on Hampstead Heath. He had literally taken me on a tour, demonstrating like the most accomplished guide, both the diurnal and nocturnal sites of activity and urging me not to confuse the two for at night roles were, as it were, reverse. This he informed me with an air of authority was known as cruising, which was apparently not quite the same thing as trolling and to be distinguished from looking for trade. It appeared that Michael had learned from where, considerable codes of behaviour and rules of etiquette in detail that would have commanded the admiration of Lady Trowbridge herself. And he gave me a lightning course in the proprieties and expected behaviour in gay encounters in order that I might avoid misunderstanding, gauchery and the strong possibility, which still remained, of being violently attacked if I mistook cues and promptings which it would take a lifetime to master. In the wooded places where the magenta tapers of Willowherb grew high and dense, a maze of paths had been cut. Men walked as though in a trance, apparently oblivious of those who were nevertheless their reason for being there. They pursued each other with the abstraction of contemplatives in a cloister, intense silence, as though in communion with no earthly powers. People would sit immobile for hours, bodies bronzed, hair bleached by the sun, Tableaux of self-contained isolation in the clearings between the trees, where the grass was like burnt silk and seeds of thistledown drifted on the warm wind. It seemed sacrilegious to invade such spirituality. Nights were different, peopled by noiseless shadows which flitted between the trees of which they appeared an emanation. Insubstantial figures looked fleetingly at each other, trying to discern features they did not want to see too clearly. Matches were struck, and in the crimson ogive of a protective hand, a flame trembled for a moment, lighting up a silhouette, a fall of hair, the colour of skin or eyes. These searchers in the dark had, it seemed, a great fear of trespassing, but whether upon fantasy or reality, it was impossible to know. Occasionally, they would write down your name in a notebook, adding it to a long list of first names and phone numbers. This, some said, was liberation. The point was to have fun, but to guard your heart against invasive emotion so as not to get hurt. It seemed that Michael and I had been pioneers in heartlessness, except that our hearts had remained inviolate unbroken by faithless lovers. Many of the men I met made it clear they were not up for a relationship. They had stopped their feelings at source, as though to stanch excessive bleeding from the wounds inflicted upon them. They had been hurt too many times. They had set free their feelings only to find them abused and trampled on. They were not ready for a repeat of such pain. I marvelled that they had the capacity to feel yet to have rejected it. It must be a thing of small worth and I told myself that I was not missing much. I was surprised by the ease with which these men had repeatedly fallen in love and how from the experience of their 25 or 30 years, they decided that a hardening of the heart was a principal prerequisite for survival. Yet it was in this uncompromising context that I met my lifelong companion.
0: You described the relationship then with your partner as being really transformative once it was established. Mm. So, you know, what, what did that change for you?
1: What changed my relationship with Michael, basically. A curious thing, because Michael then expressed great anger and he accused me of betraying my class uh, also i mean all sorts of irrational accusations that i kind of i'd let him down and betrayed him which i had because i mean i in a way i'd kind of seduced him away from alistair so i realized that actually michael's feelings were just it, it wasn't that they didn't exist they'd been so far buried that he'd never really expressed them and i thought it was absolutely extraordinary that i was capable of calling forth such feelings in Michael because he'd already called them forth in me and I mean I really loved him when I was young and we'd somehow prohibited any such shows of feeling when we were adolescent so I'd had that kind of repressed but I realised that it had been reciprocal at this time and I felt a tremendous sadness and a sense of guilt that we'd never actually got round to saying the kind of simplest things to each other, that we were dear, loving friends, which is what we should have said and never did.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's such a wonderful, moving memoir. So, you know, to pose a question that I might well have asked at the beginning, what prompted you to write it and to seek to get it published? Because I suppose the two can be motivated by different impulses. Hmm. I'm 84. There's nothing, there are no secrets
1: to be taken to the, Why would I want to take secrets to the grave?
0: I mean at the risk of asking a glib question, how much has changed do you think for young people discovering their own sexuality and gender identities today? And what advice or wisdom, if you like, would you want to impart, you know, from your own life and experiences on a personal level or on a political level?
1: Well I mean it's such a different world and many, many people, not all by any means, and I think in some various social classes and social groups, it's still an enormous problem but for most young people they can walk into their identity with the ease in which they enter a room and it's so different from the world in which i grew up i wouldn't presume to give any advice or, or say anything except to just to say that the experience of me and many of my peers is this kind of salutary reminder that what has been gained can also be uh, taken away again and that we should be constantly vigilant to make sure that the advantages which we now have are not lost through inadvertency
0: or carelessness. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for speaking with me today. It's been a real pleasure and privilege. The book Private Worlds, Growing Up Gay in Postwar Britain is out now. And once again, podcast listeners can get 40% off using the coupon podcast at the checkout on plutobooks.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please do follow us, subscribe, share the link, leave us a review and all the rest. We'll be back very soon with our next episode of Radicals in Conversation. So until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.